All right, there's four things I want you to hear me say as we begin again tonight. First, whatever your interpretation of scripture is on this topic, you are welcome here, and I really mean that. Second, I hope you'll form the way you view all of life through the lens of Jesus, not try to reform Jesus to fit a preconceived lens. Three, it is my prayer that you will be curious and self-reflective about the baggage that you carry into tonight's topic. Because we've all got baggage, and the only unhelpful way to carry our baggage is ignorant of the weight that we're dragging behind us. None of us are starting this conversation with a clean slate. And without acknowledging the baggage we're carrying, it then becomes the lens through which we view everything that we see and think. So acknowledge what you're carrying. Fear, anger, demand, hurt, frustration, suspicion, pride, projection. Acknowledge what you're carrying and prayerfully entrust it to Jesus. Now, it's still gonna be one of the primary factors in your thinking, but it will not get to rule if you are willing to humbly name it and as best you can, set it at the feet of Jesus. And instead, you can then become curious about Jesus' view of tonight's topic and about what makes that good news. Because tonight is about what it's always about when we're opening his word, good news. And sometimes good news lands instantly, and sometimes it takes processing and chewing on before it's revealed as good, but it's always good news. And then fourth and finally, I'm assuming as we begin part two of this four-part lecture series, that you have the context of last Wednesday's lectures in mind. If you do not, you are missing some key content and context that is essential for fully understanding what we're covering this evening, and I would strongly suggest that you go back to our video or audio podcast and pick up what is missing. So in very brief review of where we've been thus far, the general range of views on women in eldership is summarized in these four categories. Now in this table, we've chosen to use the terms mutualist and complementarian because those are generally the preferred terms by faithful believers on either side of the interpretive spectrum uh, that they use to describe their own view. And it is my desire to honor all of my brothers and sisters by presenting their interpretation in their voice. However, I will be using the term hierarchicalist to refer to the complementarian position going forward tonight because I believe that to be the term that holds the greatest integrity to summarizing the position. And speaking with integrity is my highest value as we continue this discussion. Now when tackling theological questions, it's always wise to first locate the weight that the question should carry uh, and the implications that may have before we just dive right in. So I wanna to return to this four-part framework, which we've borrowed from Dr. Gary Brashears. Die for, divide for, debate for, and decide for. Tonight, we are here to continue our discussion on women and eldership. And personally, I would locate this in the debate for category. We can and must maintain theological difference with humility and unity. And the reason for that is twofold. First, we are not discussing the dignity, worth, value, or empowerment of women in church leadership generally, but exclusively the relationship of women to the role of elder in the local church. Secondly, 
This is a highly complex topic to interpret biblically, and it is entirely possible to land on either side of the coin while remaining both faithful to scripture and well within the bounds of historic Christian orthodoxy. All to say, tonight is not me trying to glorify certain churches or theological camps while demonizing others. Tonight is not me trying to simplify an issue that the church has wrestled over for more than two centuries. Tonight is not me trying to champion one stance and drawing a line in the sand that will divide us as a people. Tonight is me in representation of the elders, staff, and women in eldership committee of Bridgetown Church attempting to serve and honor this church by providing clarity where there has been confusion. So with all of that being said, before we go a single step further, I would love to pray and then we'll jump in. Spirit of God, I pray that you'd be kind and gentle with us tonight. It's humbling uh, to see people who are choosing to spend a Wednesday night after a full day coming from whatever circumstances have made up the work and rest and play of this day for each one of them and devoting their evening to exploring a biblical topic that would be easy to brush aside or ignore or just form an opinion on without looking deeply into and so I just pray that you would honor the effort and the hunger that is being displayed by each one of my brothers and sisters by simply being here tonight, by speaking to them and speaking to them clearly, by partnering with their attention spans and desires and understanding and revealing yourself to them, Lord, as we look deeply into your word, and particularly into some of the more hard to interpret and translate portions of your word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are here tonight to pick up on a 2,000-year-old conversation. Does scripture teach that there are certain leadership roles or expressions reserved for men only based on the exclusive criteria of gender? Now, our belief, as defined in the statement that is publicly available on our website to read in full, is summarized this way. We believe that men and women are created equal in the image of God. We believe that full equality between women and men does not mean that women and men are completely the same. There is unique goodness and beauty represented in each gender that reflects the infinite wisdom and glory of God. We believe that God raises up leaders for the church on the basis of grace, calling, spiritual gifts, obedience, and character. We believe that women and men can and should lead, preach, pastor, and minister within the church. We believe that when men and women lead together, there's a ministry of love and grace that is more robust than can be sustained by one gender alone. We believe that women and men can and should serve in pastoral leadership in the local church. Bridgetown Church believes that men and women are equally gifted and qualified to lead and serve as co-laborers in the church. We do not just permit, but we emphatically value the presence of both women and men at every level of church leadership, including the office of elder. 
we see this as being in line with the teaching of the scriptures, as well as being both practically helpful and wise. And we've not reached that conclusion based on a single scholar's point of view, or a single verse of scripture, or a single argument, or some sort of theological smoking gun. Rather, our belief is based on the cumulative biblical data and is summarized in these four pillars. Biblical narrative, biblical trajectory, biblical leadership, and biblical exegesis. So a week ago, I introduced this framework and I led us through each pillar. And tonight, I want to return to the very same framework, taking a closer look and getting a little bit more into the biblical weeds beneath each of these pillars. So we will start again with biblical narrative, where a week ago we traced our framing question through the biblical story along the lines of the familiar creation, fall, redemption, renewal. However, having given a robust treatment to this section last week, particularly the early chapters of Genesis and exploring creation and fall, I want to jump right into redemption and start in the New Testament tonight to cover some untouched but important ground. So we'll begin with redemption, and specifically, we need to talk about women teachers and household codes. So first, women teachers. Some will acknowledge everything I said a week ago about the presence of women in the New Testament in all five expressions of church leadership as laid out in Ephesians. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, but still contend that women did not teach scripture to men authoritatively, but only to women. And the expression of such an interpretation in the modern church is typically the celebration of female teachers, but only in environments where those female teachers are exegetically teaching the Bible to women and or children, not in gatherings where men are present. So I will return to where we've been, specifically to the stories of Priscilla and Phoebe, to offer a response. First, Priscilla. Priscilla's name appears alongside her husband Aquila in the book of Acts, the letter of Romans, and the letter of 2 Timothy. She is widely acknowledged as a key early church leader and as a female teacher. However, some argue that Priscilla only taught women, not men. And so we need to spend a little bit more time here. In the Greco-Roman world, when referring to a man and a woman like Aquila and Priscilla, the male's name was always listed first. Name order was highly important in every social order of the day that went for leadership positions, class, and secular gender hierarchy. When the New Testament writers talk about this couple as tent makers working alongside Paul, they always follow the cultural norm of the day, Aquila and Priscilla. But interestingly, whenever their teaching and ministry leadership is in view, the order of their names is always reversed. Priscilla and Aquila. This is such a break from the cultural norm and what's represented elsewhere in the biblical narrative that it must be intentional, suggesting that Priscilla carried the dominant teaching role of the two. Dominican priest and New Testament scholar Jerome Murphy O'Connor writes, The public acknowledgement of Priscilla's prominent role in the church, implicit in the reversal of the secular name form of naming husband before his wife, underlines how radically egalitarian the Pauline communities were. Now this name order thing is particularly important this evening because Priscilla's name is listed first in Acts chapter 18 when she and Aquila instructed Apollos, a man, educating and sharpening his biblical understanding as a fellow teacher. The term used for Priscilla and Aquila's instruction of Apollos is the Greek term 
ektathemai, which means to convey information by careful elaboration, explain, or expound. It's teaching. Priscilla taught Apollos how to preach. Now, some make the case that this sort of explanation, though, was less formal and authoritative than what is referred to in the New Testament as the spiritual gift of teaching, but I would argue that that is reading a view into the text rather than letting the text say what it says. This is the identical Greek verb used for Peter's explanation to the Jewish Christians after his eye-opening encounter with the Gentile uh, Cornelius in Acts chapter 11. And it is the identical Greek verb used for Paul's response to the Jews in Rome when he's asked to explain the beliefs of the church. He witnessed to them from morning till evening explaining, ektathemai, about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and the prophets, and he tried to persuade them about Jesus. If that's not teaching, I don't know what is. All to say, it is very difficult to conclude, one, that Priscilla was not primary in teaching the scripture to Apollos, and two, that therefore we see clear evidence of a woman authoritatively teaching scripture to a man on the pages of the New Testament. And that brings us to Phoebe. As with Priscilla, some contend that while Phoebe was the letter carrier of Romans, she did not teach the letter to women and men alike. And while we do not have adequate biblical data about the specifics of Phoebe's role conclusively, there is both biblical and historical evidence that allow us to make an educated assumption. This is Romans chapter 16. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So Phoebe is given Romans to carry the letter from the imprisoned Paul to the church at Rome. Now, why does Paul go out of his way near the end of his letter to praise the character of the mailman, or in this case, the male woman? Well, recall from a week ago that a letter carrier in the ancient world was almost always doing a whole lot more than just delivery. A letter carrier was typically responsible for explaining the letter's contents and the intent of the letter's author to the recipients explaining the meaning of Romans and the heart and intent of Paul to the church. There's a name for that, teaching. To assume that Phoebe was not entrusted to teach the letter of Romans in some form would be to make Phoebe an exception to the cultural norm of the day rather than the rule. Paul also commends Epaphroditus in Philippians and Tychicus in Colossians as letter carriers, presumably for the very same purpose. Trust this person, they understand my letter, they know my heart. Do, you, do we know conclusively that Phoebe formally taught the letter of Romans to the church? No, we don't. But neither do we know conclusively that she did not. And I'm of the opinion based on the fact that letter carriers were typically entrusted with this task of teaching historically, and that Paul makes no special limitations for Phoebe as a letter carrier in comparison to Epaphroditus or Tychicus, that the evidence leans more in the direction of Phoebe teaching, just like we see with Priscilla, than it does against it. And that brings us to the household codes. Now, as a caveat, I don't actually believe that the biblical household codes speak specifically to our question, does scripture teach that there are certain leadership roles or expressions reserved for men only based on the exclusive criteria of gender? 
Personally, while I see the overlap, I do believe that you can draw certain conclusions about God's design for structure within the home and differing conclusions about God's design for structure within church leadership. That being said, a number of scholars and practitioners do draw connection between the biblical household codes and church leadership structures, and so I will comment on those passages in response, which brings us to three key passages, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, and Ephesians 5. I'll read Colossians 3, beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they, may, they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Now, there's significant overlap between this passage and the other two I reference, and so I'm just going to cut right to the part of the passage that is most relevant for our purposes. 1 Peter 3 Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands so that if any, of, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And Ephesians 5, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now of course, these three passages when, uh, which speak to household codes in the ancient Greco-Roman world sound restrictive toward women when they are read in our modern individualist vantage point. But remember what we said a week ago, when we read scripture, three worlds are colliding. You've got the text in front of you. What does the scripture say? But then there's also the world behind the text. What did that mean to the people and the context into which it was written? And then you've got the reader based on those first two questions. What does this mean for us today? So we've just read the text. We, the reader, hear it as it sounds in the 21st century Western world. How did this text sound to the world behind it, to the people to whom these letters were addressed? Well, within the first century Roman world, when these letters were written, these passages communicated exactly the opposite message that they likely carry into your ears tonight. Household codes were very common within the Greco-Roman world, and they were in wide circulation. In fact, an existing paradigm for household codes originated with Aristotle and was widely known and culturally accepted at the time of Paul's writing. Aristotle, in his very famous work, Politics, writes... Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of the master over slaves, another of a father, and a third of a husband. 
So this is this framework for household codes. It wasn't just unique to Aristotle. It's a, a similar framework that we see show up in the writings of the historians Plutarch, Philo, and Josephus, revealing how widespread, well-known, and socially accepted this sort of household structure and division of roles was. In contrast to the biblical household codes we just read, Aristotle writes, the courage of a man is shown in commanding, of a woman in obeying. These existing and widely accepted household codes counsel wives to obey their husbands as a master and lord over them. It is crucially important then that when the apostles adopt an ancient literary form, such as the household code, to see both how they adopt and adapt the ideas to a Christian view of men and women. Speaking to the relationship between a husband and a wife, Paul uses the phrase, submit to one another in Ephesians chapter five, rather than counseling the husband to command and the wife to obey. Elsewhere, the wife is commanded to submit and the husband to love sacrificially in the way of Jesus. Now, submission is a Christian virtue founded in the character of Jesus in Philippians 2, and it is attributed to both men and women elsewhere throughout the biblical narrative. The New Testament household codes can easily be misinterpreted when they're stripped of their original culture and context, but read within that culture, the resounding message is one of countercultural empowerment to women, not their subordination. In other words, when these letters were read by the people to whom they were written, they likely gasped with the empowering scandal at the very words where you wince at patriarchy. And that brings us from redemption to renewal. The biblical story is bookended by corresponding pictures, union between God and people, and union between man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2, and then a restored union between God and people, and restored union between man and woman in Revelation 21 and 22. It is our shared belief as uh, elders, pastors, and staff of Bridgetown Church, that there is a clear biblical difference between man and woman in Eden, an expression of God's image uniquely expressed in both the similarity and distinct differences between man and woman. But while there is difference, there is not hierarchy. And likewise, that while there is biblical evidence of difference that reflects the magnificence of God's image into the reunion of heaven and earth, that there is no such evidence of a male, or fe male and female hierarchy that carries on into renewal. And if the church is called and commissioned to be a preview community, an outpost of heaven on earth, a living image of what uh, is to come in Christ's return, there should certainly be the defense and celebration of the beauty of God's image reflected in the distinct difference of men and women, but there should be no hierarchy between men and women in the church. In short, if there is no hierarchy of, or role distinction between men and women in eternity with God, then there should be none in the church today. Our aim is to be a foretaste of eternity in the present moment. To those holding to any form of a hierarchicalist interpretation, I believe two questions are worth serious consideration, a biblical question and a philosophical one. The biblical question is, do you see hierarchy in Eden before the fall and or in the renewed garden city? The philosophical question, do you imagine there is hierarchy in heaven? 
Do you imagine that the renewal of all things and eternity with God possesses some type of hierarchy based on gender? And what I'm calling hierarchy is often framed as unique difference in role, but if there is an aspect of church leadership that men are fit for but not women, and there is no corresponding aspect of church leadership that women are fit for but not men, then that is not a complementary, unique difference between partners. It is one partner possessing capacities that another simply does not. And personally, I just find it philosophically difficult to imagine heaven that way. And I find that difficult to read into scripture. To borrow from the scholarship of Ronald Pierce, Cynthia Westfall, and Krista McKirkland, maleness and femaleness in and of themselves neither privilege nor curtail one's ability to, use, to be used to advance the kingdom or to glorify God in any dimension of ministry, mission, society, or family. The sexual differences that exist between men and women do not justify granting men unique and perpetual prerogatives of leadership and authority that are not shared by women. That brings us to our second pillar, biblical trajectory. So a week ago, I cited the work of Dr. William Webb to trace the biblical trajectory for both slaves and women who were counterculturally dignified and empowered, often at great cost to God's people, across the biblical narrative, concluding that while we do not see, or I'm sorry, we do not explicitly see the full redemption of God's uh, of these people groups in the first century New Testament church, scripture does provide us adequate data to draw the conclusion that the dignity and empowerment of both the enslaved and women is meant to continue on into the church until we represent an outpost of heaven on earth in this respect. So I wanna return now to this redemptive movement hermeneutic approach to reading scripture, noting three potential dangers to avoid. The first danger is that you would throw out redemptive movement hermeneutics altogether. Of all four pillars, I imagine this is the one that makes a few of you a little bit nervous because sometimes a static in contrast to a trajectory reading of scripture is termed as the historic or traditional reading, which has the advantage of sounding as if it is the one reading that is backed by church history while the other is not, but that simply is not the case. Redemptive movement hermeneutics have been used all the way back through church history and even back into biblical history to properly interpret scripture. So if this form of biblical interpretation makes you nervous, please hear me. First, I believe that it's unwise to build a theology out of redemptive movement alone. But when it is paired with other forms of biblical study, as we're doing here, it's really important. Second, there's equal danger in ignoring redemptive movement uh, as there is to magnifying it, as seen in the 17th and 18th century Christian churches in the American South, who justified and advocated for slavery based on a purely static biblical interpretation. And then finally, this, uh, this is a bit of review, but Jesus himself used a redemptive movement hermeneutic when developing a theology of marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19 but two dangers still remain. The next is that you would equate the biblical trajectories of women and the enslaved, implying that those holding to any form of a hierarchical reading of scripture are equivalent to those advocating for some form of slavery. And that is misleading, far too simplistic, and honestly a dangerously combative conclusion to draw. 
The final step on the way to full redemption for an enslaved person is some form of human ownership. The final step toward an empowering, uh, the final step between an empowering, dignifying, and loving hierarchical understanding of church leadership structure and a mutualist position is a single role within the church reserved exclusively for men. Those two are not even close to the same thing. And to equate those two is to use scripture as a weapon to fight with eternal family members, which is the opposite purpose for which we have been entrusted the word of God. While women uh, uh, in church leadership and the enslaved do share a biblical trajectory generally, I caution against exactly equating the two. And then the third and final danger is that you would misapply redemptive movement hermeneutics to other biblical topics without careful biblical study. Now the most obvious example here would be sexual ethics. Some may, with really good intentions, assume that what is true for the enslaved and women in leadership can then quickly be applied to biblical sexual ethics, broadening the sexual ethic uh, beyond the traditional view that has been held by the church for 2,000 years. But that assumption would be driven by the current cultural narrative, not by the timeless biblical narrative. Within the biblical story, there's an unchanging sexual ethic. Marriage is defined as a lifelong one flesh covenant union between two sexually different persons, male and female. And all sexual relationships and expressions outside of marriage are defined as sin, a distortion of God's created order, not an addition to it. That is the clear ethic given at creation. It's upheld throughout the Old Testament. It is reinforced by Jesus, and it's consistently taught and practiced throughout the New Testament. While the biblical trajectory is one of redemptive movement for both women and the enslaved, that is not the case for sexual ethics, which is consistent from beginning to end. Even more, Jesus and the subsequent New Testament authors articulate a narrowing trajectory, if any, raising the bar of sexual abstinence or, or fidelity by ending polygamy, counseling against divorce, and renouncing sexual lust altogether. Additionally, there are examples of increasing in countercultural biblical leadership for women at every stage of the biblical narrative, but there are no such examples of spiritual leadership being entrusted to those willfully living beyond the bounds of Scripture's sexual ethics anywhere on the pages of the Bible. In fact, the very work that I've been citing from, from Dr. Webb, is from his very thoughtful book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, where he applies an identical biblical approach to all three groups, drawing one conclusion for slaves and women and a different conclusion for sexual ethics. Third pillar, biblical leadership. Now, a week ago, we looked at the role of women in leadership in the New Testament. However, we skipped entirely over the Old Testament, which includes some very important female leaders for our discussion. In the Old Testament, women function as both prophets and leading judges, which involved both spiritual and governmental leadership for the nation of Israel. Deborah stands out in particular because she carried both roles as prophet and judge, as we're told in Judges chapter four. In fact, in the book of Judges, Deborah is the most esteemed of all of the Israelite judges. She functions in a very similar role to Joshua by leading the nation of Israel as both governor while also leading the nation of Israel spiritually as prophet. 
Similarly, Huldah was a notable female prophet during the era of Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. And both Miriam and Isaiah's wife, who is unnamed but a key figure in Isaiah chapter 8, held active and visible prophetic roles. Now, some holding to a hierarchical view will argue that women only served as leaders in the Old Testament during tragic periods when Israel lacked sufficient male leadership, as if God were making a reluctant concession in the instances of the women that I just named. However, there are a couple of major problems with that argument. The first is that it makes God more of an efficient pragmatist than a creative and redemptive designer assuming that God's willing to bend created order to accommodate to human unfaithfulness, which is a really hard argument to square with the majority of the biblical story. Second, and most importantly, that argument just doesn't actually line up with the history. Deborah, Huldah, and Miriam all led alongside renowned male leaders, Moses, Barak, Josiah, Jeremiah, and more, which demonstrates the opposite pointing more to a male-female partnership that we see in Genesis than it does a divine concession. If God's design for leading his people includes executive leadership function that is made available to men but not to women, the obvious question is, what's the deal with Deborah? Women can't. Women aren't supposed to. God's plan is, Deborah did. Deborah was. And most importantly, God is the one behind it all. And finally, biblical exegesis. So there's four key New Testament passages that are relevant to our discussion, all of which are found in Paul's letters. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which we treated as one passage last week. Those are the elder qualification passages that we looked into. But that leaves 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 11, and 1 Timothy 2. And so tonight, I want to take a closer look at the latter three. Now, before digging into some highly complex passages, it should be remembered that while all Scripture is universally applicable, meaning it transcends context to speak truthfully and authoritatively into our lives today, every book of the Bible was written within a particular culture and context, meaning that applying biblical truth requires translation of culture-specific and context-specific language. So with that, our first passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 through 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a, woman, for a woman to speak in the church. Now, because we are zooming in on a couple of sentences in the flow of a long letter, first, it should be said that within the context of this entire chapter where Paul tells multiple groups of people to be silent in the church gathering, for instance, someone speaking in tongues without an interpreter, someone who interrupts a prophet mid-prophecy, his target here is not women, but anyone compromising the healthy expression of the spiritual gifts in the gathered church. Second, Highly empowering and countercultural to his time and place, in these verses, Paul affirms the right of women to ask questions, which was tragically outside of the cultural norm and expectation. Still, 
Your eyes and ears were not drawn to the countercultural empowerment, but to the seemingly demeaning patriarchal command. So what's the deal with women being silent and asking their husbands at home? Now, we can't import our expression of uh, gathered church worship onto the early church. We've got to enter into theirs, which looked very different than uh, a common Bridgetown church worship gathering does. There were much smaller gatherings, meeting in homes. Teaching was a whole lot less formal. It was more interactive. Questions were a regular part of the sermon portion of the gathering. Also, women were encouraged to speak in the worship gathering in this very same letter, just three chapters prior in 1 Corinthians 11. So if Paul explicitly told men and women to speak and pray in the gathering just a moment ago in the same letter, why would he restrict questions about prophecy coming from married women here? Amidst all of the other noise, that is the question. And the short answer is, we're not entirely sure which is gonna become a frustrating theme for you tonight as we make our way through these passages. No one, regardless of position on the spectrum of views of women in eldership, knows conclusively beyond the shadow of a doubt the specific situation Paul's addressing here. But neither are we entirely in the dark. There are two possibilities uh, the evidence points to. The first is for the sake of the church's witness, and the second is for the sake of the whole. So let's start with the church's witness. There's reputable historical evidence to suggest that in first century Corinth, it would have been scandalous for a woman to address an unrelated man directly. And if that's the case, the law that Paul refers to earlier in the chapter is not the Torah, but rather the Corinthian customs. Or it could be for the sake of the whole, meaning some questions were inappropriate or unhelpful for the whole community because the questioner lacked a fundamental knowledge of the subject matter being taught, hindering the spiritual maturity of the whole on behalf of a single individual. And that's quite possible given that in the ancient Greco-Roman world, women were far less likely to be educated than men, particularly among the Corinthian congregation, who we do know some about from Acts chapter 18, it's likely that women would have had even less access to education than elsewhere in the Greco-Roman world. Male congregants would have grown up reciting the Torah, which for what it's worth, nowhere commands women's silence and submission, meaning the men of the congregation were formerly synagogue educated and in a much better position uh, to understand the teaching. Secondly, Paul seems to address married women specifically here, not women in general. And if there were both Jews and non-Jews in the Corinthian congregation by the time of this writing, we do know historically that formal education for most girls stopped at the marriageable age of 14 if they were Greek, or between 16 and 18 if they were Roman. Greek boys, though, continued their education well into their 20s and typically were not married until their 30s meaning there's real historical possibilities that the married women in this congregation were teenagers with fractional education in comparison to their adult educated husbands. What is most likely is that Paul is guarding questions for the sake of the whole in this particular congregation because that's the concern of the broader passage, order in the worship gathering. Paul is probably silencing questions that are not appropriate or beneficial to the broader group and redirecting them to a more appropriate time and place by instructing the married women who were unjustly undereducated to voice their questions. 
but to do so in an environment that was more conducive to truly learning the biblical foundations that the teaching they just heard uh, was built on. While this text may sound repressive in our modern world, in the ancient context, it almost certainly meant uh, the opposite sentiment. First Corinthians 11, two through 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is a man independent of woman. For as woman came for man, from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Just another light reading <laughs> this evening. Now, without question, regardless of one's theological interpretation on women and eldership, this is one of the most complex and difficult passages to translate and interpret in the entire New Testament. There are two keys, though, that unlock its most likely meaning, and they are dialogue and kafale. So first, deciphering the di dialogue. Proper interpretation of the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians begins with acknowledging that it is technically 2 Corinthians. We know that there was an existing letter correspondence going on between Paul and the Corinthian church. It was a bit of a pen pal thing they were working with. That's noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And because of that, we know that we are walking into a conversation that was going on before we showed up. In this letter, Paul is responding to a previous letter from the Corinthians that has never been recovered. And we know that in this letter, Paul is answering questions that he was asked and correcting misconceptions from that unrecovered letter. There are occasions in 1 Corinthians when Paul is quoting from their earlier letter to identify a misconception of the Corinthian Christians so that he can respond with clarification and correct teaching. And there's some occasions when Paul makes this really obvious, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. One of you says, or in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4, for when one says, 
There are other occasions, however, where Paul did not make the dialogue obvious. And there's one very clear reason that he would do that. He didn't need to. The Corinthians he's writing to know what their letter said. He's quoting their own words back to them. Like in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, where translators are united that Paul quotes the Corinthians saying, all things are lawful for me, and then responds, but not all things are profitable. Back to the Corinthians, all things are lawful for me, before Paul responds to them, but I will not be mastered by anything. But here's where it gets really interesting. Translators are fully united that Paul is speaking in a rhetorical back and forth dialogue with the Corinthians here, but nowhere in the original Greek does Paul clearly indicate this. Biblical Greek doesn't use quotation marks, so there is no such thing as clearly marking out dialogue with punctuation. Add to that that this form of dialogue was a super common way of corresponding at Paul, in Paul's time, meaning Bible translators are then left with the very difficult task of interpreting words or whose words belong to Paul and whose words belong to the Corinthians. So how on earth are they supposed to decide? Well, they're entirely dependent on context and logic. What does the context indicate and what is the logical flow of the argument and does it make sense? So back to 1 Corinthians 6, 12, translations like the NIV and the ESV and others add quotations and English phrases to the Greek, like you say to indicate dialogue, but those words and punctuation are not there in the original Greek. Then why would they add them? Because context and logic have led to the conclusion that Paul is using a rhetorical flow argument to respond to the Corinthians' previous letter contextually it makes sense, and without dialogue, this verse doesn't logically flow. So, what's up with our passage in 1 Corinthians 11? If you do your own research, you'll find plenty of different interpretations on this. It is a confusing, complex, problematic passage for translators and interpreters at every place on the spectrum of position uh, when it comes to women and eldership. The interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 put forward by the theologian Lucy Pepiot, which has been adopted by scholars like Scott McKnight and Brad Vaughn, argues that this same rhetorical dialogue approach that we see in 1 Corinthians 6 also makes the most sense of this passage based on the identical criteria, context and logic. And that, I believe, is the most likely explanation. So Dr. Pepiot's interpretation, which has also been published recently in Scott McKnight's recently released New Testament translation, reads as follows. Follow along with me on the screen where the speaker is indicated. Paul, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Then the Corinthians Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Paul, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. The Corinthians, a man ought not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Paul then responds, 
Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with to pray to God with her head covered? Does not, the Corinthians, the very nature of things you teach, that if a man has long hair, is it a disgrace for him? Paul, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a head covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So this rhetorical dialogue approach follows the logic of the passage. Without this kind of dialogue, it is very difficult to decipher any coherent meaning to a point that Paul might be making. This also solves for a number of incoherencies in the passage that otherwise have to be addressed. Again, totally irregardless of one's view on women and eldership. Let me give you one example. If it's not the Corinthians speaking, but Paul, about men's, hair long, or men's long hair being a disgrace in verse 14, then the interpreter is left to figure out why Paul, who we know from the book of Acts, lived by the Nazarite vow and grew his hair long while living in Corinth among these people, calls long hair a disgrace for a man. A more important example is the most literal interpretation of the concluding verse of this passage reads, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, in this passage, Paul is confronting the men of Corinth for forcing women to cover their heads in worship based on a false interpretation of Genesis 1, punctuating his whole argument with, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, no other churches are forcing women to cover their heads, so you shouldn't be either. But in order to make the last verse fit the passage logically, many translations don't interpret the final verse literally, but reform the language to a less direct interpretation that reads, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God, entirely changing the meaning. All the other churches force women to cover their heads, just like you do, so if you've got a problem with it, you're the exception. Do you see how important it is to decipher the dialogue? Now, do we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the accurate rhetorical flow? No, we don't. And neither do we in 1 Corinthians 6, which you and I have read as dialogue for our whole lives. Are there other possibilities of what this could mean? Yes, there are. I'm simply suggesting that this seems to me to be the possibility that makes the most sense contextually and logically. And that leaves this tricky word, kafale, a word that can be translated to mean either head or source and is interpreted by the NIV, which we just read from, as head in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, if we translate this word to mean head authority in 1 Corinthians 11.3, it presents God the Father as the hierarchy, hierarchical authority subordinates God the Son underneath himself and then logically presents the Father as the hierarchical authority over the Son, a theology that was condemned as heresy in church history. But if instead we understand this word to mean source, the passage then aligns with historic Christian orthodoxy and also logically flows with the narrative of Genesis 2, when the woman was created from one of the sides of the man. Therefore, head does not mean subordination. 
It's just an observation from the creation story that flows with Paul's argument. You guys getting sleepy or are you having fun? Mostly sleepy? Okay, one more. First Timothy 2, 9 through 15. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, regardless of one's position across the hierarchicalist mutualist spectrum, this passage, like the last, presents a number of difficulties in both translation and then subsequently interpretation. I want to focus on three key questions. What is the broader concern of the passage? What sort of teaching is forbidden? And what makes women susceptible to this forbidden teaching? So first, what's the broader concern of this passage? Well, 1 Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy. He tells him in the third verse of this letter to stay put in Ephesus to sort out the rampant false teaching that has begun to creep into the church. That then becomes the primary theme and the broader concern of the entire letter and gets repeatedly referenced throughout the letter that follows. Paul goes on to identify untrustworthy teachers that have come to Ephesus who are developing a distorted theology from the earliest chapters of Genesis and who are targeting wealthy single women in the community for their financial gain. Those misled wealthy women are likely the source of the false teaching problem that Paul's addressing in our passage, which he identifies, I'm sorry, which is why he identifies them by their expensive, gaudy clothing. So, what is the broader concern of the passage? False teaching. Secondly, what sort of teaching is forbidden? Paul's direct command in the passage is really interesting. I do not permit a woman to teach, didasco, or to assume authority, authentane, over a man. She must be quiet. Now, this word authentane, which is translated as assume authority here by the NIV, is incredibly rare. It appears uh, almost never in any ancient literature of any kind from this time period, and it shows up here and only here in the entire New Testament. If Paul were speaking of a general sort of exercising authority, such as exegetically teaching the Bible, for instance, he had plenty of more common words to choose from that show up elsewhere in Scripture. There's a wealth of linguistic evidence to the tune of 29 respected Bible dictionaries and translations that translate this word authentane as either dominate or domineer rather than assume authority, making this a manipulative, power-hungry, and dysfunctional form of teaching, not generous biblical exposition. So, what sort of teaching is forbidden? Domineering, which philosophically aligns with the consequences of sin disrupting the union of man and woman all the way back in Genesis 3. 
Finally, what makes women susceptible to this domineering form of forbidden teaching? Well, there's no New Testament letter in which women figure so prominently as 1 Timothy. So women certainly seem to be specifically involved in the false teaching Paul's addressing in this letter. And given what we know about Ephesus, that is not surprising. Ephesus is the home of the Artemis cult, which is the subject of Acts chapter 19, and we know quite a bit about this cult historically. Artemis was a cultic female goddess whose female followers held hierarchy over men. Artemis was viewed as the protector of women and the guardian of their virginity, and the Artemis cult was the widespread religion in the whole city of Ephesus. It's likely that Paul was addressing the influence of this cult when it comes to both false teaching and women, particularly in this passage. And if that is true, it makes much more sense of much of the complexity that we run into in these few verses. For instance, why false teaching would be prevalent in general and a domineering style of false teaching particularly, why women would be more susceptible to falling into that sort of teaching than men, even the passage's most confusing turn of phrase, which I would argue is women will be saved through childbearing, makes a whole lot more sense if it's held up against the backdrop of a cult uh, protecting women's virginity. And then finally, why Paul would bring up the creation story because it's similar to what the false teachers have done uh, to, to a circle of wealthy widows who were given a false interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 and are using that to distort their understanding and ultimately deceive the church. So what makes women susceptible to this domineering form of forbidden teaching? Artemis. A reasonable reconstruction of this passage in 1 Timothy 2, according to scholar Linda Belleville, would read as follows. The women at Ephesus, perhaps encouraged by the false teachers, were trying to gain an advantage over the men in the congregation by teaching in a domineering fashion. The men, in response, became angry and disputed what the women were doing. In summary, Paul is likely forbidding a domineering form of teaching aimed at superiority and domination, not the teaching of women in general. Now, that doesn't solve every problem presented by this passage or every question you might have of an extremely complex portion of Scripture, but it does give you the gist. And for those wanting more, there's more written in relation to this passage in the statement that is available right now on our website. This passage, perhaps more than any other, is linguistically difficult to reliable and consistently translate into English in the first place, and then interpret in line with the biblical narrative after the translation has been done. Regardless of one's view, I would caution anyone from building a theology on the, inter er, on the foundation of one of the New Testament's fuzziest passages, but instead to let the clear interpret the unclear. In closing, it would be unbelievably proud of me to pretend that I can, in a single lecture, thread the needle of a few of the Bible's most complex passages that have stumped men and women of faith smarter and wiser than me for centuries. I am not holding these passages with pride, but with fear and trembling, doing my absolute best to offer you the best possible interpretations and the consensus of our elder board and committee and to offer them to you in a way they can hopefully be understood and digested. These interpretations held alongside the other three pillars, I believe, lead the thrust of the biblical data 
to point in the direction of men and women serving together at every level of church leadership. And for those who want more, who'd like to do their own study and venture into the biblical weeds on their own adventure, go for it. On the screen right now, you'll see the full list of resources that was studied by our committee, which is divided into three groups. That top group is scholars representing the mutualist position. Then that middle group would be scholars writing from a hierarchicalist position. And then that bottom group of two books are interesting supplemental reads that do not fit neatly into either category. The book, How I Changed My Mind on Women in Leadership, is a collection of essays from church leaders in the West who at some point during their uh, pastoral vocation changed the position they held on this particular topic, and they write essays on why and what led them to that change. I find some of them to be incredibly helpful, others not helpful at all. You're welcome to take a look and form your own opinions if you'd like. And then Webb's book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, which provides interesting biblical data, particularly as it relates to the biblical trajectory or redemptive hermeneutic argument that I've been presenting to you. After reading and critically interacting with all of those resources as a committee, we would direct you to these, if you go to the next slide, as the best, most scholarly and compelling works in our humble opinion. So if you'd rather not read everything, but just jump to the ones I would say, I read all of them, these are the really good ones, then I would recommend the resources that you will find on this slide right here, which are also the recommended resources listed at the conclusion of the statement on our website. Now, let me say one final time. What I have presented theologically over these two lecture nights is not a smoking gun. In this particular topic, there is not a single piece of biblical evidence that makes for a closed case. There is room for civil disagreement and healthy theological diversity. What I have presented to you is, in the humble opinion of the elders of Bridgetown Church, where the cumulative biblical data points. And as you've heard me say again and again, when handling theologically complex topics such as these, it is wise to let the clear interpret the unclear. So again, a lot more could be said, but that is enough for tonight's introduction. <laughs>